everyone and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host, Shay Wissell. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I live and work, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. This podcast is proudly sponsored by ADSET, the Australian Disability Clearinghouse on Education and Training. ADSET is a national resource that aims to promote discussion, dissemination of information and advice that informs educators, disability practitioners and students with disabilities on inclusive education, teaching and support within the Australian education and vocational training sectors. We are so excited to be launching our 50th podcast with over 25,000 downloads worldwide our podcasts continue to be a valuable resource to our growing community. This is a special edition podcast from our Living Successfully with Dyslexia 2021 conference. I had a roundtable conversation with Autumn O'Connor, Tammy McGowan and Dr. Rebecca Flower on neurodiversity in the workplace. Together, these women brought a variety of insights into the challenges of being neurodiverse, but also the strengths that we can bring to the workplace. I would like to welcome our uh, panellists today, Autumn O'Connor, Rebecca Flower and Tammy McGower, who are all here to talk about new neurodiversity in the workplace. So thank you, ladies, for coming along this afternoon. Thank you. If you could just give a little bit of a background to who you are and uh, where you are. So Tammy, um, Autumn, sorry, I can see you first. So are you happy to kick off? Yeah, I can do that. So I'll just start. <laughs> okay, so um, my name's Autumn and um, I am dyslexic and uh, dyscalculic and I have a diagnosis of autism. I also think I might have dyspraxia because um, I've been doing a lot of research on dyslexia recently and it's like, hey, that looks a lot like me. So that's interesting. When I grew up, I didn't really get any help for dyslexia. Um, in my family, it was sort of shunned. It was sort of rejected. But when I look at kids now, you know, there are a lot more supports for young people today. So I think that's really fantastic. My area of work is in personal and professional development education. And I lead a team of about 20 to 25 neurodivergent people, including dyslexics. Um, and we co-create this curriculum for our neurodivergent peers. So that's sort of what I do. Thank you, Autumn. Yeah, that's fantastic. Rebecca? Hi, um, so I'm Rebecca Flower. I am a lecturer at, in the Department of Psychology and Counselling at La Trobe University. I'm located at the Ventigo campus. Um, I have ADHD. I was just diagnosed uh, about two years ago. Uh, and I'm still learning a lot about myself, uh, about my neurodiversity. And like Autumn, actually, I think that I also probably have dyspraxia, but I find it really challenging to find information about dyspraxia in adulthood. I'm a teaching and research lecturer, so I uh, teach a lot about and research autism. But I'm kind of expanding that uh, to look at ADHD also. And I um, supervise and work with a lot of students who are neurodivergent, including students with dyslexia, uh, and who are autistic, have ADHD. Um, and so learning about this whole area with regards to working with adults, uh, teaching adults, uh, researching adults and the needs of adults uh, is really interesting to me. Uh, and my area of research particularly is relating to um, equity of access to the workplace. And so, yeah, that's me. Uh, thanks for having me today. I look forward to talking to you all again. Thank you for coming on. And Tammy, how are you? 
Good, thank you. And uh, thank you for having us here, Shay. Um, so hello, everybody. My name is Tammy McGowan. I am a late diagnosed autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, uh, dyscalculic. I have auditory processing disorder and multiple chronic health conditions. I am also a parent to two neurodivergent young adults. I'm one of the many um, adults who have been diagnosed later because I appear to have a more subtle presentation um, of dyslexia uh, in particular. Um, I was an avid reader as a child and I think that um, even though my father and brother um, are dyslexic, I got skipped reason that I appeared to love books so much and uh, I wasn't a, a disruptive child either, so um, I got missed. I run a small business. I um, am uh, working with different contracts, working with um, autistic people to design um, resources and programs. Uh, I work with employers to create accessible places um, and uh, I also uh, facilitate training for teachers and parents of autistic kids. Thank you, Tammy. And what fascinates me and what we've spoken about throughout today is the number of adults that get diagnosed later in life uh, which all of us have that experience yeah. of. So we've had the privilege and opportunity of speaking before around some of our workplace experiences. Uh, Beck, do you want to start us off on some of the experience you've had? Absolutely. Um, so I started working very young, uh, which now I think about it potentially contributed to my, I guess, really late um, or recent diagnosis of ADHD not being picked up when I was younger. I started working at 14. I worked in fast food and hospitality for many years. So I was I worked in fast-paced roles that were challenging, had a lot of change, um, a lot of, I guess, mental stimulation uh, and where I could kind of work around my challenges, but also that used up a lot of my energy. Um, it wasn't until or when I started university, I also was working uh, in hospitality at the same time. And when I did my PhD, I think I had about 10 casual jobs. So I guess look, quite clearly looking back, I was neurodivergent. I needed a lot of stimulation, but at the time, no one picked up anything. And I think keeping busy kept, uh, kept me uh, occupied and looking like I was performing, but really it was at the detriment, I suppose, of my own uh, mental health and, and looking after myself. I was just busy all the time. It wasn't until I really had a job that is requires sitting all day where I noticed that something um, was different and that it was a bit of a challenge for me to have a nine-to-five job. So for many years, I, I also realised I had a lot of challenges um, with particular areas and thought that perhaps it was just due to my intellect, perhaps I wasn't as smart as others, perhaps I didn't take on information as quickly as other people. Um, but as I learned more about ADHD and other areas of neurodivergence, I think it's actually that I learn in a different way, that I have different needs to uh, non-neurodivergent people. Um, and so it's been really useful to me to find what works and to be able to adapt my workplace to my needs. I'm fortunate now to work in a job where I'm working off campus. I have a lot of flexibility with regard to working location and managing my own schedule, uh, which is excellent in the sense of uh, being able to self-direct my time and work with my energy flow and take breaks to be able to keep my brain stimulated. I have a lot of deadlines. I have a lot of challenges. There's a lot of novelty that works really well for an ADHD brain. But uh, 
I also have a lot of time optimism, which means that I think I can get a lot more done than I can. So I guess it, for me, it's been really useful learning about uh, neurodiversity and, and I think I still have a lot more to learn. Um, but I can quite clearly see looking back how my neurodivergence uh, changed the way I work and really impacted me in the workplace. And I guess that just makes me more passionate about understanding more about the different areas of neurodiversity and how we can better help employers understand that, but also better help adults understand their needs, how they learn instead of just self-blaming. And we all had a bit of a laugh when you said that um, you take on more than you you should and that you your timelines, you feel like you can get a lot more done. <laughs> and uh, I don't know for the rest of our panel, but I know for me that I'm always over committing and at the 11th hour frantically trying to get uh, things ready. Autumn, have you felt that way? Um, with trying to get a lot more done than you think you can do. Is that what yes. you mean? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I certainly get that. I <laughs> I find that for me that it feels like there's multiple things going on. So because I have um, autism and dyslexia, in in a way I have issues and benefits on both sides. So I have issues with organising how I'm supposed to put thoughts into order particularly for written materials. And I'm an editor, so I should be able to do that. So, but then I also am very good at that. So at times it can be, it, it, it's sort of unpredictable, I guess. Um, at times my autism sort of comes to the fore and I use all those amazing strengths and um, I can really get things done. And other times my dyslexia is coming up and um, can kind of get in the way of things um, and make me feel really scattered in terms of being able to concentrate. Um, and certainly I think what's works best though is just being kinder to myself and not trying to push on deadlines. So something that um, my partner actually came up with, which I follow now, is to triage um, my tasks because I get a lot of emails. Um, I don't know if you all experience that, but I get a lot of emails, a lot of little small little admin type jobs that I need to do. Um, and they all take a lot of time. So if you spend your day just doing admin, it can take the whole day and you haven't really done anything. Like, yes, you've answered emails, but you haven't really done any of your work that's piling up. And so the triage system is to go for the biggest or most important task first, and then um, I can break it up by doing a little bit of admin. So if I do say 10 minutes of admin every morning, by the end of the week, I would have achieved all of it without ruining my whole day and getting lost behind things. Thank you. I think that's really important, especially because it feels like when someone sends you an email, you have to respond straight away. You know, even if it's at nine o'clock at night, you know, there's this notion now that there's instant, we want everything instantly and everything answered instantly. And so having a strategy like that, I think can be really helpful in managing uh, time. Tammy, how have you felt? Because you listed a number of different uh, labels mm. um, when you introduced yourself and we've had um, a lot of conversations around labels today, but how do you manage in the workplace with so many neuro diversities, differences, difficulties, whichever um, word you'd like to pick today. <laughs> Look, it's a great question. Um, with my particular brand of neurodivergence, um, sometimes I'm not really sure where one diagnosis blends into another. Um, I was diagnosed with autism first as an autistic and then I was diagnosed as an ADHDer and uh, I got the combined type, which is awesome. 
and funny um, to me that I am um, both unable to concentrate but also hyperactive. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The D-Hub is our digital learning space where you can access our first Australian e-learning courses for those working and supporting dyslexic employees, as well as webisodes, online courses, communities of practice, and much, much more. So head to the D-Hub today and start your learning journey. dhub.ddyslexic.com. I thought, well, you know, I've been tested for all of that. I may as well find out why I can't do numbers and why I have trouble remembering instructions and this really uneven, spiky skill set. And so then I paid for the full dyslexia assessment and I was expecting to have dyscalculia, um, but because I could read, I wasn't expecting to also have quite a severe presentation of dyslexia. And so all those things that I've put up with my entire life, like having to reread a sentence three times because it's not sinking in Mm. um, and typing backwards, not being able to mirror, not being able to copy dance steps, um, not being able to catch a ball. There's so, so many things that go with all of that. And it was during that assessment that the specialist said, did you know that you've got sensory processing disorder and auditory processing disorder? And I was like, well, no, actually, um, awesome. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Then I went to our local uh, deaf society for a full audiology assessment and discovered that, in fact, I can't hear much at all without a um, hearing aid support. And so I thought, well... I've made it to the grand age of almost 48 years old with that spiky skill set that Beck was talking about and that so many people have talked about today, that feeling of why am I so good at some things some of the time and really unable to do any of these things, especially when I really want to. And I can, um, so yesterday I gave a, I do say so myself, a pretty, pretty good a business presentation, um, but then I was unable to remember my four-letter PIN code. Um, couldn't get it, no chance. And I was just like, wow, I just gave a business presentation. So I know we've talked today about imposter syndrome, you know, thinking how did I get here without everybody realising that I'm, like, completely incapable if they give me too much to do. And also very much relating to autumn with that need to be productive, to be busy, which we, we all talk about the overcommitment, but also I think that there's a lot of trauma in growing up and not understanding why you're different to other people and that we do feel this pressure of people telling us that we're not trying or mm. um, that we are not applying ourselves or we're not interested and you're so good at this, why can't you do that? Again, that, that spiky skill set and so I think everyone's talking about this all day. And so because of that sort of trauma response, we've learned to gather our self-esteem around how productive we are and how much we're doing. And so I think it's a compensation thing that we all pack in as much work as we can to show people that we're capable and we're doing this and look at us go. Uh, And then we collapse underneath. (laughs) So, um, you know, I've worked in most sectors. I've worked in all the community service sectors now except for the elderly now working for myself, it's been the best possible environment because um, I can meet my sensory needs without having to um, engage all day 
in any kind of open plan nightmare or uh, water cooler talk nightmare <laughs> or remembering what your colleagues' children's names are or, you know, like I can actually just focus. So That all resonated with me and that makes me a bit anxious about going back into the workplace and having to um, remember those it's, it's remembering the names that really get me. <laughs> I'm really good at faces, but not names. Um, thank you all for sharing a bit of your experiences within the workplace. I think you know it'll resonate with a lot of uh, people that have attended today. We've had a lot of dyslexic attendees or people with learning disabilities, and I think this will be a really important uh, discussion for them to hear. And we've touched a little bit on some of the challenges in the workplace. Were there any other challenges that you thought were important to raise, particularly for um, people that are employing or working with dyslexic or neurodiverse employees? Beck, was there anything else? Um, I was just reflecting on a comment that I think Autumn made about email and how it kind of relates to what Tammy said as well, actually. I think that sometimes um, email is a part of so many of our jobs these days. And like Autumn said, we can be so reactive if we just respond to email all day. But I think it gives us a bit of a sense of control and can make us feel productive. And like Tammy said, we, we feel this need often to show... I Productive, I can do this. And it's, I think it's a bit of a challenge. It's this working between this. I have needs. I work differently to other people and adaptations really help me. But at the same time, I'm great. Please keep me on as a really good employee because I'm excellent. <laughs> and I think that's why we just push ourselves to these limits. Um, one strategy that I found helpful uh, for myself, but also working with uh, students uh, who are dyslexic or um, have ADHD or who are autistic, uh, and, and colleagues as well, is that I, it is a bit awkward at the start, but once we uh, work on it, it's really helpful, is discussing communication needs outright. So if I'm working with a new team or a new student um, that I'll be working relatively closely with, uh, you know, and of course this isn't possible in all jobs, but in lots of jobs, it's just having this clear discussion about what are your communication preferences? What are your communication needs? Uh, and can we find a way to work together that meets all of our needs? And so one of the things that I talk about is allowing time to respond to emails. So I generally talk about leaving two business days for emails. And if it's something urgent, we have to discuss it over phone. Uh, these rules can change based on whatever team, but it means that instead of thinking I need to be sitting on email all day and replying, knowing that people I'm working with know I need some time to reply because I'm focusing on other things. And I also let them know that, uh, and of course this will change per job, but in my job there's often, I guess, uh, a huge workload and sometimes an expectation we will work outside of traditional working hours because we have flexibility. And so I let people know I won't be emailing on the weekends. Um, I let students know that too. And that's been quite helpful because I guess it gives some clarity around and boundaries around this is what I need to, I guess, feel comfortable in the workplace and to communicate with you openly. And I found that helps build relationships, but also takes away some of the pressure associated with email and allows time to focus on those big things so that I can better triage my work time, like Autumn said too. That's uh, a really great suggestion that's not only uh, practical for a neurodiverse staff member, I think that for every staff member uh, they can implement Absolutely. a strategy like that because, I mean, for me, having that little red dot causes a lot of anxiety that I've got to get something done. Yeah. Where uh, from a partner, he'll have 400 emails. So, you know, everybody works so differently and I think being able to have some of those boundaries because sometimes we're not very good at putting boundaries in place can be really important. 
Absolutely. in the workplace. Um, were there any other challenges that anyone else wanted to raise that um, they've noticed, Autumn, particularly because you work with a lot of neurodiverse staff as well? Um, yeah, I think um, something that I personally find a challenge, but I've also noticed in um, my uh, staff as well, is asking for help. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it might it might be something that everybody struggles with. It might not just be a neurodivergent issue, but I've noticed it specifically in this population and with myself as well that, um, and I think Beck touched on this a bit, you know, you want to be seen as capable and you want to be seen as someone who can achieve things, but also have your employer not think that you're unable to do things because you're showing a weakness. Essentially, the challenge is knowing when it's too hard or too difficult or doesn't have enough instructions or you just don't have the time because either you planned poorly or because there's too much work and you shouldn't have said yes. You know, but basically knowing when you can't do it and then asking for help. That's one of, I think, the biggest challenges. And I wonder, like, I don't have the answers here, but I wonder if the reason why it's a challenge is because there is this incredible fear that comes with expressing that you can't do something. And mm. maybe it's a stigma um, or maybe we think that we're going to be judged too harshly because we say that we can't do it or we need help. So that I think that that's actually what restricts people in, in asking the help. And then, of course, and as I'm sure we've all experienced, if you don't ask for help and you really did need help, the problem is like a snowball. It goes downhill and it collects more and more snow. And before you know it, it is like, you know, something that could have been this tiny little, hey, I just need help, becomes this overwhelming thing, sweeps you up and you're gone. You know, you're rolled over the top with the giant snowball. If you bring it to your employer or your boss at that point in time, you know, then they will think you are incompetent and incapable. So it's sort of knowing when is the right time to bring a problem and feeling confident that you can say you can't do it um, or you need help. So the only way that I've managed to work this over through myself is to um, try to remember that I'm not superwoman. <laughs> you know, um, I'd like to think I am. Uh, I'd like to think I'm fantastic, but I'm not. <laughs> you, oh, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> so I, I need to sort of exercise a bit of humility and I also need to just be aware of my humanness, I guess you could say. Like there'll be days when I'm tired. There'll be days when I'm confused. There'll be days when I'm scattered. And all of these things could be completely unrelated to my neurodivergence. It could just be life. It could be life with a baby. <laughs> That's what I think is going on. But it could just be life. And other people's lives are affected in this way too. You know, they also struggle in different ways. So with my staff, I've said, hey, just if there's a problem, just bring it to me and you won't be penalized. Yeah. That's how I, I, I practice because they come to me. It doesn't mean that sometimes I'm a bit frustrated when something, you know, needs extra work. Um, or I need to find someone to help them. But that's more of, I guess, an organizational thing on my side. But it's, yeah, I would love to, so if you, if, if anyone on the panel has ideas of how do we overcome this problem of asking for help and being okay with, I guess, our vulnerability and weaknesses, or just recognizing that we don't have enough time and we can't do it. Yeah. I, I'd love to, to speak to that, if it's all right. Um, yes, as, please. As I 
yeah, as I was saying earlier, most of us, um, I don't believe anybody who has a disability or is neurodivergent gets to adulthood without experiencing some significant trauma. And a lot of our fear of other people's responses is based on actual experiences from childhood and up of where we have been made to feel unworthy, incapable, uh, like we're not meeting our potential. Um, and this is for, you know, because I, I really want to highlight that people with intellectual disability can also have dyslexia. Mm-hmm. People with all disabilities have dyslexia. Um, and, um, you know, but because we're not treated as individuals when the diagnosis is talked about, it, it makes it hard to remind people that we are all just human. I think sometimes the fear is that if we're asking for help for something that we've already had help for, then it looks yeah. like mm. we have not Then it looks like we're lazy and it's hard to explain to someone, I know you've gone through this with me three times, but I haven't seen it for four weeks and now I've forgotten because my brain didn't restore it. I also think that... Um, did something really, really important in there, um, Autumn, about us being human and that we deal with a lot of the same stress and pressures as people who are not neurodivergent. And in the workplace especially, I think that a lot of people who are not dyslexic could relate to a lot of the things that we struggle with at some level. But if people can imagine that we're experiencing those things but it is amplified significantly amplified to a clinical level where we meet a diagnostic criteria so people might be able to relate to i'm having trouble concentrating because i didn't get enough sleep or um, i'm having having trouble remembering um, my login because you know i'm feeling unwell but for us this is um, a constant issue that we always have to create workarounds and I've mentioned before the example of um, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire dancing and that um, they were both considered incredible dancers, but Ginger had to do everything that Fred did backwards and in stilettos. And he's probably the known dancer. And I think that it's like that for those of us that are neurodivergent. We are experiencing all the same pressures and stress that everyone in the workplace is, at workplace is, but then we have that added on top. And because we know that sometimes we might mispronounce words or lose words or not be able to recall a fact or not be able to do something, especially by watching us, we live with that extra adrenaline and, like, anxiety about, you know, how that's going to be. And um, if you add on top of that that a lot of us have co-occurring disabilities and that dyslexia is not the only diagnosis for a lot of us, Um, And a lot of us are really impacted by our sensory environment at work as well. Background noise, disorganised environments, open office smells, um, pain, other things that we're dealing with on top of that. And so, you know, for some of us, literally every little bit of energy that we've got, we've probably used just getting to work (laughs) and then... We're just sitting at a desk completely depleted while all these expectations are coming at us and we can't tell anybody because we don't want people to think that we don't belong there. And then we don't want to ask for help because we've already asked for help. So, yeah, sorry, long answer. No, thank you, Tammy. There was so much um, that we could unpack 
in what you said. And I think it was a really nice way of explaining, you know, that everybody has workplace stress and then we have this additional, because I have this discussion with my partner all the time. He says, well, what about the, the non-neurodiverse my brain's starting to slow down. I can't think of the word we normally use. He says, what about us? And, you know, I get tired too and I get this. And so that was a really nice way of explaining how, yes, you do, but there's an added layer of complexity for us that uh, we have to manage as well. So thank you for explaining it uh, in that way. I think that that was wonderful. We've talked a lot about the challenges and you all know that I could talk about talk about those a lot. There's so many different things we could unpack around the challenges in the workplace and day-to-day -day living. But today we've heard a lot about people's strengths and successes. And I, I would sometimes worry that when we focus a lot on the successes that for some people that have dyslexia that are neurodiverse, they may feel, well, I'm never going to be like that or that's just not me. I'm never going to be an academic or I'm never going to do my doctorate or, you know, I just want to be able to read to my child or to be able to I, interact with my child's friends or how can we talk about the strengths in a way that encourages people to see the best of themselves do you think without them feeling like they're inadequate compared to another neurodiverse person like Richard Branson for an example I'm never going to be Richard Branson <laughs> one because I'm not male but uh two because that's just not me so how can we encourage strengths that um that are focused within us but yeah we're not comparing ourselves to the rest of the neurodiverse population? One of the things that I do when I meet people, particularly if I'm presenting on being autistic, is I just lower everyone's expectations on me up front and explain that I'm very average. Um, I'm not gifted. I'm not a savant. I can't count matchsticks. Um, I can't. <laughs> I'm hopeless at art. Um, I can't dance or sing. I don't have perfect pitch hearing. I am so ordinary, okay? Um, but what my strengths are is that because I've had to think differently than other people and I didn't have any basis for that of why, um, I've become quite resilient. I uh, am like a dog with a bone trying to learn how to do something. I get so excited and passionate and connected to the work, um, particularly if I'm interested in it. And I can make connections that other people can't. And I know previous speakers have talked about this, that having that different lens means I see things that other people in the room aren't going to see. And sometimes that's the missing bit for people that I see. So as many challenges as I have, um, I also love when I have that flow of creative thought and energy. And I like thinking differently to other people most of the time. There is, I'm scared of using the word gifts because it doesn't really feel like you're unwrapping a prezi when you can't remember something, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can't read it. <laughs> we, we, definitely, we definitely do each individually have skills that we have developed to do that thing that everybody else could do automatically and we had to manually train ourselves to do it. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, Tammy. Um, I also... Uh, I'm really upfront with people when I'm talking to people about, well, I guess for me, I'm thinking when I'm giving presentations, particularly when I'm talking to students, I'll just let them know. Um, and I suppose this is a privilege that comes with working in the area and conducting research in the area that I can feel a little bit more comfortable talking about um, being neurodivergent because I know that's not as comfortable for everyone in the workplace, but I feel that I can be a little bit more open and becoming more confident with time as I understand more about 
my neurodivergence, you know, I'm a bit much sometimes. I think a student feedback was, she's a bit much. <laughs> I, I am, um, uh, but I can't do a lot about that. So, um, you know, I'm going to do my best though to teach you about the subject content and I'm really passionate and I think that can be quite helpful. But sometimes I go on tangents. Sometimes I talk a little bit too much about myself. Um, I'm doing this as a way to try to relate to the content, not to be kind of self-absorbed. Uh, I do mix up words sometimes. And if you need clarity, please let me know. And I guess coming back to what Auto mentioned before, I try to let people know that you know if if things aren't clear that's on me as a supervisor not on them and that hopefully that encourages them to ask for clarity a little bit more um I try to encourage people to you know student staff that I'm working with reflect on their communication needs and their preferences and I think that's helpful but I think um you know, with regards to thinking about our strengths as neurodivergent people, it can be just really helpful to self-reflect. Like Tammy said, you know, there's all these things where, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's there's challenges. You know, I I tried to heat up something before and it was frozen and my husband said, what are you doing? It's quite clearly wasn't cooked yet. And I thought, well, you know, it was so simple. But to me, I thought, I think I was bored. I didn't want to wait any further. Um, and I just now have to have a bit of self-compassion and have a bit of a laugh and think, oh, yeah, that's so ADHD of me. Or I call my mistakes the ADHD tax sometimes. I'm sure that could be applied to lots of things as a way to kind of lighten it up and have a bit of self-compassion. Um, like Gordon was saying before, a bit of... Um, it's you know recognize our humanness but then that also with that when you're thinking about those things that you do that are a bit different to everyone else instead of just pinpointing the challenges I try to reflect on if I'm doing something different to someone else and think oh that's interesting and what that means for me and I guess what I notice in it working with a lot of um, students with dyslexia or students who are autistic or have ADHD is this oversensitivity to the world, which is often seen as a negative thing. But I actually think it means that people are quite in tune with the world and what's going on. And that can be really helpful, I guess, particularly because I'm working with a lot of students who might be future psychologists. They can pick up things from other people quite nicely. They think outside the box. Um, they can see these patterns, like you mentioned, Tammy, can see these relationships and patterns that other people can't see. And I think without self-reflection, sometimes neurodivergent people don't know that that not everyone can do that um and also like you mentioned Tammy are really solution oriented and great creative problem solvers there are these strengths and I think sometimes in working through our challenges we just miss the strengths we don't know that they're strengths we think that everyone does them um but we might do them a little bit better or a little bit differently and so I guess just encouraging a bit of self-reflection about what you do differently and how they're great things and where there's challenges are there workarounds that you can come up with and instead of being ashamed that you need the workarounds have a bit of uh, self-compassion and uh, use that problem-solving creativity to come up with an interesting workaround for yourself instead of judging yourself for needing the workaround. I love those messages of self-care and self-compassion. I think they're so important as we manage day-to-day and -day working life. Autumn, from your opinion, not just your strengths, but what you see uh, in your workplace with your team members, how do you bring out the best in them? Uh, practice builds mastery. And this is something that I think is really, really important to teach anyone, kids for sure, but adults as well. Um, for example, my partner is a brilliant artist, amazing, I think he's fantastic, but he says the only reason he's good at being an artist to that level is because he spends 
hours and hours every day for many years to build that skill. Now, and I think art is a really good example because art in some ways, you know, there are artists who just have it, whatever it is, and there are artists who may not have it but are still skilled. So you might have a particularly good eye for color or shape or form, and then you practice and practice and practice and practice and you become an amazing sculptor, yeah? You may not have any of those skills, but then you practice and practice and practice and become an amazing, um, say, photorealist, someone who can do that look very real. And um, I think this, it, whether we think of art or other areas, is sort of important to be aware of, is that people who we consider masters, who we consider fantastic and brilliant at that thing that they do, whatever that quality or strength is, most of them haven't just woken up one day and been brilliant at it. It's not like you just roll out of bed in the morning and suddenly you are an Olympian. You know, like you're getting gold medals for for cycling. No, it's because you've been cycling every day in your team, in the rain, in the, you know, you're actually, you know, you're working on it. And, well, you might sit, sit here and listen to me and say, well, I've got really bad dyslexia and I can't actually do things. I want to be a writer, but I can't be a writer because I can't write. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but there's also like you may not become um, a you know, a, an amazing novelist, um, but you will improve if you just practice. And it, it sort of is something that I think is, is hard to hear because I think when we look at other people who are very skilled, who have all these brilliant talents, is that we then think and assume that they just had it. They just were amazing, they just um, were savants or they, they didn't have to work, but everybody works to wherever they get to. You know, this it, it's, it's something you have to work on. So with my writers, um, one of them who started with me three years ago, yeah, when they started with me, they had a creative writing degree, so they were fantastic at writing anyway. But then when they started writing, it was really, it wasn't really related to our house style. Yeah, it was very personal, it was flowery, it was um, very nice, almost poetic at times, and it really irritated me, yeah, <laughs> because it wasn't the right style. But what I did was kind of, I guess, coach them and help them to bring that style, that floweriness, that that sort of special, unique way of looking at the world that they had into the style that I wanted um, for the work. Yeah, it's a bit more academic, it's um, a bit more research, the research is applied to the topic, and now they are one of our best writers. And I think it's, it's as a, um, from an employer point of view, looking at your staff, the key here is to find out the things they are good at as the employer. When you look at them, you can actually identify this quite easily if you manage a team, you'll know who has the strengths and where their strengths are. And then you just develop them. And if you kind of think, well, you know, they're here and I want to bring them over there, then just try to find the way that you can slowly get the two like elements of each part that, 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 that knit it together. So for example, with the writer, yes, he was already doing writing, amazing writing, but it was a bit too flowery. But that showed me that he could think really creatively about how he writes. So what I did was teach him how to access um, materials like um, more academic materials and then said, hey, had a look at this and see if you can apply some of that creativity to understand the topic better. So, I, you know, I think in that way you take what 
little good they have or the, you know, the little element of this is really amazing. And then you bring that to where you'd like it to be. And it, it might seem a bit challenging just in this sort of abstract concept that I'm saying, but if you are a manager, you'll be able to see this in your workers for sure. If you're looking at it in yourself, the best way to do it, if particularly if you have a bit of negative self-talk and doubt going on, is to get someone, a third party, to look at you and critique you in a loving way, like a therapist or um, a partner or a very close friend or someone in the community that you trust. It could be your priest as well if you're religious. So there are options for people to look at you and say, yeah, you actually have this skill and you can develop that and you can get some form of mastery. And it could also just as well be a skill that is perhaps considered in a workplace may not be considered as much of a skill, I don't know. But I mean, something like um, empathy, something like understanding someone. There was some really interesting research talking about um, parents who understand or what is it? Parents who seek to communicate with their child in the way their child communicates actually have a better relationship with their child and the child has less issues growing up in social situations, in understanding themselves, you know, a lot of incredible benefits. And the thing that you're looking at there is how your child communicates. So it's not how I communicate, putting that onto my child, but I'm looking at how my child communicates and I'm trying to understand them. And by understanding them, I'm able to communicate with them better. And then by them communicating better with me, they can communicate better with others in the world. And I think that kind of paints this idea of the skills that we want to develop and the strengths. Is that, are you, is everyone following that? Yeah. Yes, and I think that, um, you know, you touched on some strengths that becoming more and more necessary in the workplace, so that empathy, that emotional intelligence, uh, and I think your analogy of, of the working with the child and the parent um, was a really nice way of summing it up. All those strengths you've mentioned are so important in the workplace. One question is, was getting a diagnosis helpful? Overwhelmingly uh, so. Yes. Definitely, definitely. Um, one of the things that I, I say to people who question about, is there any point getting a label or is the label helpful? We know we're different. Um, we actually know. Uh, we know as soon as we start seeing other children being able to do things that we can't do and we know when we're doing really well at things that other people can't do, like someone previously talking about blitzing people at chess. But we know that we're not the same, okay? And so people give us labels um, and some of them are really unflattering. And so having an explanation is what a label is it's it's not saying right that's it you're a sandwich it's saying this is why you are wow that was a vague kind of thing sorry um <laughs> a squirrel. Uh, but um you know it, it, it's saying this is why you are having these difficulties let's talk about how your brain works and now let's start using it to your advantage as opposed to you are not perfect you are an imperfect human it helps you instead understand who you are, how you work, how you operate. I think I agree with everything you said, Tammy. Every day I learn something new about myself. Every hour I feel like I learn something new about myself. It's helped me have much more self-compassion instead of being annoyed at myself or doubting myself. I think 
oh, that's interesting. What's a workaround for that challenge I just had? Or like I said before, I kind of can laugh about it a little bit and think, oh, that's very common because now I know there's a community of people who share these challenges with me. I can't overstate the the usefulness of the diagnosis for me. It helps me in the way I teach. It helps me approach um, inclusive teaching in a different way. I think I can be a much more inclusive educator. Um, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable to me how useful the diagnosis was, I suppose, as an adult. And sorry, can I add in there too, it's also really helped my relationships with my friends, with my husband and with my children um, who are also mostly neurodivergent because there are things that we do that can be frustrating for other people and other people frustrate us too. But having an explanation for why we do things and offering ways to support us so that it's less frustrating for everybody improves everyone's relationship. Can I add to that, Tammy, that one of the things that I found most helpful, um, so yes, I, I thought my getting a diagnosis was good and for me it was autism late. It helped me because all that negative self-talk, all those horrible things that I told myself that I was, stupid, can't do this, you know, also really horrible words and labels, they weren't true. You know, so a lot of this stuff comes from childhood. A lot of it comes from what you intuit that teachers are thinking about you growing up um, as well. And sometimes the teachers do say horrible things, at least they did when I was growing up. And, you know, report cards, you know, lazy and, and you know, can't figure it out, not very good at maths and, you know, just not thinking, not trying, that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, hang on, I was. I know I was trying. It gave me this ability to go, no. That self-talk, I'm stupid, I'm stupid, I'm stupid. I'm not stupid. I've, mm -hmm. I have dyslexia and autism and together it's just made it hard for me to process certain things. So I'm not stupid. And mm -hmm. even though I struggle with it every day, it is to make sure I don't say the I'm stupid. I do have that reminder of, no, 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 it, it's your diagnosis. You just need to kind of chill and accept this and so yes it's great getting diagnosed as an adult but i think gosh if you got a diagnosed as a kid yay because that means you can jump on real quick to stop that negative self-talk yeah and, and get I, that understanding you know i agree and i think the more we learn from people with lived experience so thanks for having this all here Shay. i know i don't have dyslexia but talking about neurodiversity in general as well i think is helpful the more we hear from people with lived experience, the better we understand the nuances, the things that help, the things that don't. So I think from looking at the research literature, we still have a very poor, I think, understanding of the needs, the daily life experiences of people, Yeah, particularly with the dyslexia literature, ADHD literature, autism literature is maybe a little bit more advanced, but still a long way to go before we really have a good picture of what's going on and how best to um, support people with lived experience. So it's great to hear from people with that lived experience like yourselves. Thank you everyone for being uh, so on honest and open in with that question. I think we've got time for just one more question. What can be done to educate Australian businesses? And I think that's as, we're, as I was leading to before, we encourage employers to look at and how can we support them I would like to uh, propose, we need more programs for dyslexia into workplaces. So we have a lot at the moment, there's a lot of big push to have autism um, pods and autism programs in the workplace. And if you're autistic, get a job, you know, cybersecurity is very big and it, 
you know, mm. there's a lot of options there. But what about something for a dyslexia program? The benefits of a dyslexic person are actually quite wide. The being creative, thinking differently, um, you know, being very good usually at very spatial things, being able to move stuff around your head and seeing things very visually. There's a lot of great opportunity there. And I think it would be lovely if we could get a dyslexia program and the supports being someone to support and buddy system the dyslexic workers um, in a way that will support them. I, I would love to see that. I, I will see if our business can do it, but I would love to see that. And I think in terms of educating is, you know, just getting more of the lived experience out there, getting people like um, Beck here in research, but, you know, getting researchers to do research where they actually look at lived experience and where they look at, uh, instead of seeking to cure the issue, or prevent the issue at childhood, but perhaps seeking a ways that we can get the truth of the matter out to the public and dispel the myths and stuff like that. I really think it's also conferences like this that you're doing, Shay. So uh, that this whole, you know, getting the information out there in a really accessible way and what better way than webinars, honestly. But yeah, that's my sort of two cents. But programs, we need programs, particularly for dyslexia. Thank you, Autumn. We are working frantically behind the scenes to get those programs awesome. implemented and out and into the big wide world. And some of that work is uh, with your organisation as well, Autumn. So thank you. Maybe uh, just if, if somebody trusts you information about themselves, if they disclose that they are neurodivergent, take some time to learn a little bit about the disability. But remember that you're working with an individual and um, that we all come with our own experiences, backgrounds, education. You know, there'll be similarities to the text because we have the diagnosis, but find out what we need as individuals and what supports would help us. Please read blogs, look at YouTube videos, look at lived experiences, talk to adults who are, are neurodivergent because... We are the experts in our own lives and we can share a lot of information with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think just knowing too whether or not you're uh, a person seeking to, I guess, educate your, your own organisation about your own needs or a, and or a, a manager or team leader looking to see what you can better do to support your employees or, or students, um, knowing that a lot of the changes that will make be made to accommodate people with any kind of neurodivergence will actually usually help everyone, regardless of, of whether or not they're dyslexic, they have ADHD or autistic are, are a neurotypical, you know, have mental health conditions, a whole lot of things. So often, and often these accommodations are so small, but can have a huge impact on people and their ability to thrive in the workplace. So yeah, I think having these discussions, if you're comfortable, can be a really great start. But often those changes can have a huge impact. Well, thank you so much, ladies. It was such a privilege and honour to talk to you all again. If you'd like to learn more about our guest speakers, or about AdSet, head to dyslexic.com. And if you love our podcast, then why not sponsor one today? Find out more at dyslexic.com. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure you sign up to our mailing list so you can keep up to date with everything we're doing, including our advocacy and awareness work, peer support programs, research, and the D-Hub, our digital learning platform for all your needs. If you love this podcast, well, why not sponsor one today? To find out more, head to dyslexic.com. Oh.